So kind of we've talked several times about kind of what the what you know how we are very future thinking people, but how does thinking about the future affect things that you do today? <clears throat> you eat better, okay? So, <laughs> because why? Well, because I, I've already lived longer than I thought I was going to as a teenager, so you know, that's why like, I want. So, so, <laughs> uh, children. So, so eating healthy now, even though there are some sacrifices and maybe taste and uh, you know or pleasure, is uh, for something for the future. You got to be there for your kids, right? All right. What else? What else do we do that kind of like helps us for our future? Well, we start thinking about the legacy that we might leave. Okay. Start deleting things on the internet. That's <laughs> Start. Del- <laughs> you can't. Yeah, that that outlive you. Reflect on it. Okay. I think you also reflect on how little bitty things make great differences in your life. Mm-hmm. You know, five minutes here, thirty seconds there. It's like the yellow brick road. You know. Took the right lane, and if you had taken the left lane, what would have happened? <clears throat> the right lane's okay. We did okay there. So, God bless. We are to have been guided. What is it? As the founders would say, by that invisible hand. By that invisible hand. <clears throat> so, uh, yeah. So, there's a lot of things, and I, I think maybe even it'd be it'd be interesting. I should have a, a panel from uh, you know those that have. You know, ventured forth longer than some of us. I don't. Know, I mean, I don't know how. You know, what's up for right now? So, <laughs> and so it's yeah. You, your adventure has gone longer than than we have. Um, yeah, like Sarah and I were meeting with uh, we're, uh, a financial advisor, and it's like, how much money are you going to need when you retire? And when are you going to retire? And how long are you going to live for? And what happens if something happens? You know and I know, and he, they run the scenario, and it's like, your likelihood of meeting all your events is low. You're like, whoa, what are we going to do about it? You know, so, <laughs> I guess, uh, so, I don't know, sometimes it's, like, paralyzing when you think, like, I don't even know what the future looks like. So, when we talk about the future, there's there's certain things that we're, we're going to, like, so how does, how does understanding and thinking about the future affect our life today? And so, reading scripture, I don't want us to just kind of throw up our hands, but we sometimes get to that way, and hopefully I don't make you feel like that uh, when we get through our study. Um, but we got the last few verses for this section of Revelation 20 as we kind of think about this passage talking about what the millennium looks like. And so, um, you know, Revelation 20 is not the only passage that kind of talks about a future time, uh, a future kingdom before a final state, uh, kind of a final eternal state. And so when we look at that, you know, we're trying to imagine how, uh, something in our past, well, I guess everything is our past, as it relates to the future, what it may look like, and how we kind of stitch these pieces of Scripture together. And so over our, our last few times together, we've kind of talked about methods of interpretation and just, you know, what do we bring when we're kind of understanding Scripture. We said that historical grammatical interpretation is as, is as faithful to the text as it can be. Um, and then we talked about uh, you know, how Old Testament promises to Israel 
kind of influence or maybe shape like our conclusions about how we understand um, what the future may be in certain portions of Scripture. How are those promises fulfilled, and what does that mean? So we've kind of kind of talked about that, and then um, how difficulties exist for multiple views based on the the millennium. So the first week we kind of talked about all that, and then then looked at Revelation twenty one through three. And we saw in those, those verses, right, that, that after this battle that John has a vision of Satan being bound and thrown into a pit. Uh, interesting, it's by an angel and not by Christ or God himself. An angel does this. Um, so that's kind of even shows the, the power that, that God has in that event. And so thrown into this pit for a thousand years and then released. So that's just the text, right? Uh, verses 4 through 7, we see that some saints will come to life. And they will reign a thousand years while unbelievers will have to wait uh, to come back to life. And so we'll get to that um, uh, in future weeks. And then we looked at some Old Testament passages to see how they filled in some of the details. So, uh, how many of you guys can still see it? So, if you weren't here for this, then you're like, I don't know what you're looking at. But, right, sometimes like you see things in Scripture that you can't unsee. And we looked at some of those ideas. We talked about different four different views of, of the millennium. And just in brief, like there are kind of four basic views and even kind of a, a blend or combination and how they treat different portions of Scripture. And so we talked again about the first few, views, for first few verses the first week. The second week was uh, the next few verses, you know, just kind of seeing this idea that this thousand years is repeated so it's something that's not absent in the text or only mentioned once. And so what do we deal with that? And how do we understand that? And how do we understand the events that come along with it? And we looked at some Old Testament passages and kind of related it together. So how many of you guys like donuts? I kind of felt like last time, so I'm, I'm, I'm just kind of preferencing you. There was a little bit of a glazed over look, and you kind of looked like that. Um, <laughs> When we were kind of going deep into Old Testament, and I get it, because I sometimes get like that as well. It's like, when is this happening, and what is that referring to, and how do you pull it together? Um, and so that's not my intent, but, you know, if, if you feel you're becoming a donut, you know, um, <laughs> I, I apologize. It's just kind of where, where we're at at, at this. It, it'll only, hopefully it'll only happen uh, this week, and then next week we'll, we'll start picking up some other things that should be, I don't know about fun. You should... <laughs> I just said what we're all thinking. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, <laughs> next time. Next time. Um, okay, so this is where we're at. Uh, last few verses again. This is not all Revelation 20, but at least the millennium. That's what we're kind of like looking at and why we're looking at this, this chapter. So we see, And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Okay, so just right off the start. So what happens when the thousand years are ended? So what do you see? Okay, Satan is released from his prison, right? So going back to the verses earlier of, of this binding and being put in a pit, and we talked about that the first week, what they kind of look like. So if someone, or 
you know, in this case, Satan, but if someone in general is thrown into a prison, what does that, what do you understand that to mean? Okay, so they did something wrong. Uh, that's why they're put in the prison. Uh, but what's the prison do for that person as well? So that's true, though. That's a good, a good note. What's that? So contains them for what reason? People are put in prisons. Okay, so yeah, so prevents them from doing what they were bent on doing because they were evil and normally what, what they were doing. So when we think about this again, is this literal or figurative? And we talked about that kind of the first time, like even Satan being a spiritual being, what does that mean? There has to be some figurative understanding, but at least like the confinement um, and what that looks like. And again, this idea of this pit and a visual John saw this pit and things coming out, these demons coming out of the pit when, when it was opened up earlier on in Revelation. Um, but what does that, what does that look like? So if Satan is in prison, what does that mean? Yeah. And I think like you would think, you know, I don't know, sometimes like, you know, our modern understanding of like jails, like someone could sneak in a phone and they could still like, you know, run a network from wherever. But I think for the most part, we'll say like in John's time when he's thinking of, of a prison, right? Like his activity is no longer able to continue on. And so how does that feed? I just say that is how does that feed into our understanding? Because our understanding of what is going on with Satan, right? Some views would say that Satan is bound now. What would that look like? And if you say that Satan is bound now, and there's then, and there's again, I've heard different ways of how that is explained. Well, the gospel is, you know, is, is not being impeded by Satan. So Satan cannot be victorious over uh, the gospel. But at some point, you have to kind of wrestle with, like, what's this understanding of what John is saying? And so um, so we see specifically, though, he cannot deceive the nations, because we'll see that in a second, what that looks like. And then his activity, obviously, is limited in what he can do. So when we read verses, you know, uh, where Peter says that Satan is, is prowling around like a lion, you know, is that something that applies today and what does that look like or is Satan not a threat? And so we'll, we, may, we may come back to that just a little bit. But I leave that as kind of a, this is what the text says and this is our understanding. Um, we also see in verse uh, 4 earlier that the rest of the dead will come to life, right? So unbelievers who've died during the final battle of Armageddon in all human history beforehand, right, um, you know, they're going to have to wait. So, you know, that, that again, like, leads to questions, you know, and we, we, we entertained some of them last time as far as, well, what does the millennium then look like? If there's this thousand years, you know, it's exactly a thousand years, but this, this period of time that Christ is ruling and this kingdom that he is overseeing, you know, what does that look like for believers that live there? And if somebody dies, you know, what happens to them? And so you can see how kind of like things that aren't spelled out specifically in Scripture, we kind of then start to lead to like connecting theological dots. So even though um, we don't know for certain what things will look like, 
we can take kind of educated guesses about what we think may happen, but what's the problem about an educated guess? That's what it is. We're stupid. We're stupid. So, yeah. We're, yeah, so, so there's things that, right, like we're, we can't stand fully uh, on, but we can have confidence still. I mean, you can still argue and say, well, this is what I think is going to happen, but also understanding, right, that our view is limited and our understanding may be limited. And I say that as we get to kind of a portion of scripture that we're about to get to, as even like kind of how I understand it kind of differs from way others understand it. And where do we land? I want to like pull this all together. So, because then you want to step back and say, well, not does it not matter, but in what sense does it matter? So we'll, we'll get to that in just a second. But we see that kind of even here as far as like, what, what does that look like? You know, and if somebody died, because that was an indication we looked at in Isaiah, that somebody who died at 100 years old would, you know, be lamented because people presumably don't die. A hundred would be a young age for somebody to die. So what happens to that person, you know, if, if people are there on earth? And so anyway, so things that you can start kind of like your mind leading to as you start thinking about these things as you're trying to connect the dots. But let's get back to the scripture. So what, what will Satan do when he is released from prison? You mean he didn't reform himself while he was in prison? Okay. Yeah, so... It it happens. Okay, okay. Yeah, and right away, I mean, I have this question, and you know, I think we'll ask it later. But then, why go through this? You know, why wait a thousand years? Like, why not at the end of the first battle, like with with the the um, the Antichrist and the Beast, uh, they're thrown into the lake of fire. Um, why not Satan with him? But we'll entertain that thought in, in just a minute. So for now, we see that he's going to come. He hasn't learned his lesson. And specifically, says he's going to come and deceive the nations. Um, and so we see kind of that these nations now, their number is like the sand of the sea, which indicates a lot of people, right? So at this point, after this thousand years, right, you've got built up of a huge population, and this population is going to rebel against God, against something we've already seen in Revelation 19. So people have multiplied over the thousand years, and then John refers to what appears to be nations. We see this Gog and Magog. So what are they? So I want you to turn to uh, Ezekiel 38. So we're going we're gonna to try to avoid glazing over. So, but, <clears throat> and Ezekiel is a passage that I refer to several times specifically. It's like John is, you know, has this connection with the words that he is using as he's seeing these visions um, <clears throat> with a tie-in to Ezekiel, you know, all the way back from kind of Ezekiel 34 to we looked at this temple that would be restored in 40 through, I think, 48 um, those chapters. So right in 38, kind of in the middle, we even looked at, uh, I think it's 36, which kind of talks about the new covenant, but even this idea of like a land that would be, you know, kind of reinstituted. So in um, Ezekiel, uh, 
you know, the first few verses, we see a reference to, um, to uh, Gog and Magog, where you see Magog. And so where is that, uh, where is that scene? Well, that's a reference to Genesis 10, the first time we see these names of Magog. We see Tubal, Meshech, and these other names that will be there. They're the sons of Japheth, who are, and Japheth was the son of Noah. So essentially, you've got a couple of these names that are listed that are the, the, grand, the grand sons of Noah. So... When Noah came and repopulated, what did all of his family do? What did basically his sons do? What was their job? Go forth and multiply. <clears throat> yeah, so go, go forth and multiply. And they did. And so references to peoples are still connected with the, the grandsons of um, Noah as they went out and they multiplied. And you even see if you read in, in Genesis that they went kind of along the coastlands of uh, of, of Israel. And so Ezekiel 27, 13, um, Ezekiel is kind of prophesying against Tyre, which is a city all along the coast that's northwest of Israel or Jerusalem, I guess, if you want to kind of have a city. And so in that you see Javan, Tubal, and Meshech, which are again, the names that were in Genesis of these sons, traded with you. So these people groups traded with you, Tyre, and they exchanged human beings and vessels of bronze for your merchandise. So he's, he's going, he's talking to all these different groups and kind of saying, these are the problems that I have and this is how I'm judging you. And he specifically mentions, you know, these, uh, these names. Um, and so in Ezekiel, kind of the first like eight verses, we see you know, it's, which is kind of representative of here in verse 8. After many days you'll be mustered. In the latter years you'll go against the land that is restored from war, the land whose people were gathered from many peoples upon the mountains of Israel, which had been a continual waste. Its people were brought out from the peoples and now dwell securely. All of them you will advance coming on like a storm. You will be like a cloud covering the land, you and all your hordes and many peoples with you. So, we see Magog, who's kind of the overseer of you know this this territory, um, or Gog is the the leader of the this territory. Magog is that they're referencing kind of these pagan nations, and then that they will come up and they will overtake um, the the land of Israel. There's a few things that are kind of mentioned. Well, we'll get I guess we'll get to that in just a second. So that's kind of the first thing, the first kind of eight verses. Um, we see kind of uh, rising up to go take over uh, this land. But what we specifically see, actually I'll just go back real quick, in verse 8, um, that you're going to go against a people, a land that is restored from war, the land whose people were gathered from many peoples on the mountains of Israel, which had been a, con- had been a continual waste, and its people were brought out from the peoples and now dwell securely all of them. It's kind of that language that for me, like, when is this happening? You know, when is uh, this kind of battle about to occur? And it is occurring when the people have already been dwelling securely. It's kind of like a kind of an important 
way to understand that, at least in my mind. So where do we see this idea of dwelling securely? If you want to go back in, in Ezekiel 34, I'll just read this for you. But in verse uh, 11, so again, this is preceding chapter 38, what God is doing, and even preceding some of the events that he talked about in the Valley of the Dry Bones and all of that. He says in, in verse 11, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. And as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he's among his sheep that have been scattered, so I'll seek out my sheep and I'll rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. So it's kind of a future event that's going to happen. And he's talking again to the shepherds of Israel and how God is going to pull them back and be the shepherd for the sheep that have been scattered. Verse 13, I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. Okay, so that's kind of his like relationship with them. Verse 20 feet, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them, and he shall feed them and be their shepherd. So when is that happening? So that's a question is, is this Christ's shepherd physically, or is this Christ's shepherd spiritually? Like we would all say Christ is our shepherd now, but are they, are we dwelling in security, or is this a time where Israel will physically dwell in, in security? And again, that's where this idea of how you understand these promises to Israel have a big impact. I take it as this is a future event where physically they will be, because you'll see some things in just a second, right? Verse 24, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. Um, I am the Lord, I have spoken. Verse 25, I will make with them a covenant of peace and banish wild beasts from the land. So what does that look like? Is that actual wild beasts or is this like some figurative language? I take that as like actual wild beasts because we say, so that they may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. I will make them and the places all around my hill a blessing and I will send down the showers in the season and they shall be showers of blessing. Okay, these showers, are these spiritual showers? Verse 27, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit and the earth shall yield its increase and they shall be secure in the land. There's that idea of security. And they shall know that I am the Lord when I break the bars of their yoke and deliver them from their hand of those who enslave them. They shall no more be a prey to the nations nor shall the beasts of the land devour them. They shall dwell securely and none shall make them afraid. And I will provide for them a renowned plantation, so they may shall no more be consumed with hunger and in the land and no longer suffer the reproach of the nations. And they shall know that I am the Lord, their God with them, and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord God. Okay, and I take that, so when, when I read kind of the first few verses of Israel and we see that these nations are making war on them and they're dwelling securely, what understanding do you have of them dwelling securely? Um, and so I feed kind of from 34, which leads me to believe that this is kind of at the end of the, the millennium, the kingdom, right, where Christ is actually reigning. But again, this is kind of how I'm seeing it. I can be definitely corrected on that. But pulling off of Ezekiel, this is kind of like the connection that I see when, you know, this, this uh, nation comes in to um, destroy Israel. So we got... Uh, now going kind of verses 10 through 23, just to kind of summarize some of the main verses, we see 
Verse 10, thus says the Lord God, on that day thoughts will come in into your mind and you will devise an evil scheme and say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. This is to Gog, right? So who's, who's kind of, um, <laughs> what does it say about God and his understanding about how this, uh, how this um, gathering of the nations will happen? So one of, one of two ways we could probably go with this. So if a, if a thought is planted into someone's mind, where did that thought come from? In this case, it seems like God. Okay. So it could be that, right? In, in, in God's you know, sovereignty, right, he could even plan these thoughts, right? We've kind of wrestled with, like, what that looks like. Or... In the least, if this is his own thought, this ruler's own thought, what does that say about God knowing his own thoughts, knowing this man's thoughts in the future? <laughs> yeah. So he, he knows what's happening in the future, even to the, 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 the detail of how this is coming about. So again, God's power is unmistakable. Down in verse 16, In the latter days I will bring you against my land, that the nations may know me, when through you, O God, I, Agog, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Thus says the Lord God, are you, of, he, you he of whom I spoke in former days by my servants, the prophets of Israel, who in those days prophesied for years that I will bring you against them? So it kind of in short, um, what, why is God doing, like, why is God having Gog do this? evangelicalism it's so easy to look at uh, God and Satan as two separate beings and they're constantly just fighting against other but what we know is that Satan is God's devil yeah so the idea of the thoughts coming into your mind yes God is orchestrating everything but scripture also tells us that God tempts no man to do evil but man is inclined by his own bent away from God that when Satan is released that influence comes in directly from Satan, which God has orchestrated to bring his plan to fulfillment. And so the thoughts coming into his own mind could be that of Satan's influence on his own fallen nature. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because I was like, we've talked about this in the past, but that's exactly like, you know, how like those kind of come together is almost, you know, pretty humbling, right? In, in, in how, that, how that comes to be. Um, and so... You know, we see God, right, saying that, uh, what's, what's, what's God's purpose? What does he say in verse, the end of verse 16 right here? Yeah. And through this judgment, God will be seen as holy, right? That's the whole purpose of, like, this, stirring up this rebellion. And again, whenever this rebellion occurs, again, people take this differently, um, is that is again his purpose for Gog? Now, is this Gog like actually Gog, <laughs> or is this somebody who is coming, you know, ruling over this area, Magog, who was named after Gog, who was one of the sons of Noah? Again, this person, right, is representing these nations from the north, 
probably in a similar area where they had settled and is coming to, again, make war against Israel. And even here in Ezekiel, Ezekiel is referring in his prophecy, which we look at past, right, past prophecies, but Ezekiel saying this person is going to come to fulfill prophecies that were made before Ezekiel. This person who's coming because the day of the Lord was this, you know, this event that's going to happen in the future to vindicate Israel and to redeem them. It was spoken of way back in even Deuteronomy. And so, again, that's kind of what we're seeing in, in this chapter of Ezekiel. And then uh, <clears throat> verse 18, kind of as, as we kind of finish out this section, it's kind of emblematic of, of, you know, the fact that war will be made against them. And so verse 18, but on that day, the day that Gog shall come against the land of Israel, declares the Lord, my wrath will be roused in my anger. For in my jealousy and my blazing wrath, I declare, on that day there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. The fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field and all creeping things that creep on the ground and all the people who are on the face of the earth shall quake at my presence and the mountains shall be thrown down and the cliffs shall fall and every wall shall tumble to the ground. I will summon a sword against Gog on all my mountains, declares the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. So it's like almost this infighting is going to happen. And with pestilence and bloodshed, I will enter into judgment with him and I will reign upon him. Uh, and his hordes and the many peoples who are with him, torrential rains and hailstones, fire and sulfur. So I'll show my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the eyes of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. So you see what's happening and the purpose is kind of um, behind it. So going back to Revelation, what are the things that, that we just see from there? I mean, it's real brief, right? Verse 8, uh, Satan will come out to deceive the nations that are uh, at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. They marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And then we'll get to verse 10 in just a second. So again, not much detail on what happens here in um, in these verses. So essentially what is, what is, uh, Gog and Magog, but it's Gog from Magog. Uh, what do they do? They come and they surround the camp. So there's this kind of battle of looks like, you know, again, uh, people are dwelling in peace. They're raised up and then they're surrounded. And then in revelation, we just see that fire comes down from heaven and consumes them. Now, if Ezekiel's talking about this time, we have a little bit more detail on what that looks like. When fire comes down from heaven, when have we seen that happen before? What's that? Okay, so that's definitely one, right? And so that's a... Sodom and Gomorrah, okay. Okay. Yeah. There's also like Nadab and Abihu, right? When they, they uh, you know, made strange fire and they were consumed. So you have this idea of, of fire kind of being this final judgment. Um, and so, you know, these details seem to line up with Revelation 20, except there's kind of a big problem when you get to Ezekiel 39, is that a lot of the events <laughs> seem to kind of connect with um, what happened in Revelation 19. 
because there's this, you know, Gog is called out to go attack the mountains. So it's a little bit different. Instead of coming up over the plains, he's going into the mountains and he is killed. And when he is killed, um, then, uh, you know, all the people will be destroyed. And you see this devouring by the birds and the beasts where remember in Revelation 19, all the birds will come out and feast. It's a little bit different because in Ezekiel, it says the birds and the beasts. Um, and there's a little bit more detail that's given out. And then there's this idea that weapons will be gathered together in Ezekiel 39 and they'll be burned for seven years. And so people say, well, if that's happening, you know, why would you burn weapons for seven years if this is like the final battle? Or why would you, you know, burn seven years or so. How do you understand Israel being dwelling in security? Well, it's probably during when they're being deceived by the Antichrist in the first few years of the tribulation. And so, again, you have to kind of like make, you try to like, again, take and connect these dots and to try to have answers for what they look like. Where I'm at right now, as I see kind of Ezekiel 38 referencing this Revelation 20 and Ezekiel 39 referencing Revelation 19, because there's a lot of overlap, but that kind of seems like, well, would God speak about one thing first and then another battle second when they seem to be the same battle, although they're two different prophecies and in two slightly different locations, one's in the plains and one's in the mountains. And so anyway, that's kind of where I'm at as a synthesis. But I know like, you know, there's other commentators that, are similar in where I'm at. And there's some that say, no, like this is kind of all Ezekiel 38 and 39 reference Revelation 19 and Revelation 20 is another battle that's going to be like what we see in Ezekiel 38, but something different. So I just kind of expose a little bit of like, hey, not everything's like airtight, right? And I think that's an okay place to be because when we don't have everything figured out, what is that? Where, what place does that put us in? Yeah. So we're dependent. Like one of the things that we, we, we must do is we must uphold scripture. Like these things will work themselves out and it is true, but how they work themselves out, while I may have kind of like justification for how I'm thinking, Somebody might feel justified in the way they're thinking, but in the end, what are the important things that we need to kind of pull away from that? And we'll get to that uh, in just just a couple minutes. So, but I, but here's kind of like where it's like, hey, these things are referenced. Okay, let's go to where that's referenced. And uh oh, did John make a mistake? <laughs> Was his knowledge faulty of Ezekiel thirty-eight and thirty-nine? I, you know, and again. The way that God gives prophecy in the Old Testament, even in Revelation, is that they sometimes don't happen in the way that we think they're going to occur. Except, in Revelation 20 is pretty chronological and linear, right? There's a thousand years, and after this, and after that. Um, for those that would take a non-millennial view, meaning we are in the millennium, and the millennium is a realized time right now, uh, this battle is a final battle, which will happen... Revelation 19 and Revelation 20 are actually talking about the same event. Although it's hard to kind of um, synthesize that with the fact that a thousand years is spoken and there's this kind of chronological connection about how things are happening and then the fact that Satan is released and then people are coming to life right after these things happen. So they have their own problems too. So, 
Moving on, so not getting too far over, and hopefully not too glazed over. Um, that's there, but I at least wanted to be like honest and open about kind of what this looks like. But when we step back, there's some final battle, right? That fire comes down, it consumes them, and then what happens to Satan, to the devil, who had deceived them? Thrown into the lake of fire. Okay, so thrown into the lake of fire. And he's got, he's got people there that he already knows. And so that was the beast and the false prophet. And what's going to happen with them? Tormented day and night. Okay. And so this is kind of like the finality for, for them. And so what will, what will, um, happen with them? And so I kind of, you know, so again, what's the, what's the purpose of that? It's like a fire. What is that? Torment, all of that, that's, that's what for Satan? Judgment, yeah. So a kind of a final judgment of all the things, right, when he fell from heaven and rebelled against God, he's been able to kind of roam around the earth, even been able to, like, speak lies <laughs> in the throne room of God um, and put in a pit and come, come back. And then finally, finally is judged for the initial rebellion. And so, I mean, again, there's questions that kind of come out. Why was Satan, you know, not judged and condemned earlier? You know, why wait for this thousand years to happen? You know, what's, what's, what's with that? You guys know I'm asking. I don't know. You know. So, again, these are, the, these are the questions that kind of build our theology. You say, like, well, you know, this is, this is kind of what I would think would be the reason. I will be known in the eyes of many nations. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. I mean, it, he can't. There's so many ways he does that, but obviously that is the way. Satan shows again who he is, and God once again puts to death, you know, and magnifies himself. So, who are we to question his ways? But it definitely magnifies who he is and his power. God being God. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So we might speculate and say, well, this, this seems to be the thing. I mean, there, there are things that, right, like in the Old Testament that were promised. And so are those things going to be fulfilled? Well, they can be fulfilled through this kingdom. Um, and so it seems, you know, again, this is again how God is working. We even ask those questions like when Israel rebelled and they're wandering in the wilderness. And we're like, why does God keep letting them, you know, do this, right? If they're supposed to be his people, they keep stumbling and stumbling and stumbling and he'll judge them. And sometimes he consumes them with fire and sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he opens up the ground and swallows them and sometimes he doesn't. And so again, those are the, those are the things that, uh, you know, there's that verse Deuteronomy 29, 29, right? Is the secret things belong to the Lord, our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may, we may do all the words of this law. And so there's a lot of kind of, again, there's, there's I say a lot, but there are some areas where um, we can have understanding or we think we know, and we kind of, again, build our theology. It's kind of our worldview, the things that kind of make sense to us. Um, but we also have to allow for God 
to do it in his way and in his timing. So we kind of looked at like, you know, from a kind of, you know, viewpoint of like, what do these things look like? Kind of the way that, um, you know, from kind of this, this, you know, premillennial view, right? There's this tribulation period. There's this battle of Armageddon in Revelation 19. There's a millennium. And then there's this battle of Gog and Magog that's spoken of. And then there'll be the great white throne of judgment, which we'll get to uh, next time. But as you, I know it's kind of hard to see, but as you, as again, as you start to kind of build your theology, there's all of these different views that say like, well, how are these things fulfilled? And you start like, even when you start diagramming them out, like, how do you make sense of everything? You're like, I don't even make, can't make sense of the diagrams that are supposed to simplify the way that things make sense, right? But again, it just allows us to be on, again, this idea that we are dependent on God and on his word. And so, not to end it with confusion, where do we, what does Revelation 20 teach us, right? One, that a millennium exists. You have to, like, explain it somehow. What does the millennium look like? I think the easiest way is that a millennium is a millennium and still in the future. So, if you don't believe that, you have to kind of understand it and look at it in a, in a different paradigm in, you know, outside of Revelation 20. Revelation 20 has to fit in some other paradigm than other scripture fitting within the way that John is framing it here. The millennium will provide fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. So all views look at that, whether it's a realized millennium, but this period of time where things are happening, it's either kind of fulfillment, those Old Testament prophecies are either fulfilled spiritually in some sense, um, or have partially been fulfilled or will be fulfilled in the future. Christ is unequivocally victorious, right? So that's clear in all of the battles, all of the scenes that we see that uh, Christ is the one who wins. Um, Satan will be allowed to deceive many. So again, what does that look like? To what extent? How do we understand that? But we see that Satan will be given his day at one point in time for a purpose that God has and it is to show and magnify his glory. So, um, saints will rule and be rewarded. So, again, what does that look like? It's clear that we see something said about uh, rewards for the faithfulness of the saints, and particularly ones that were um, martyred for their faith. And punishment awaits those who deny Christ. Right, And so we see that right at the end, and that's what we'll pick up kind of next time, because even though we shift, and I think that was the last one, and Christ, not these events, should be our focus, right? Because we can get all wrapped up into, like, what this means and have debates and argue over that. I remember the first time as an early Christian, I went to a debate, uh, and it was just like these tr- churches kind of at this guy's house, and um, it was called Hoagies and Stogies. Uh, and so, you know, it's a very... Um, <laughs> manly thing to do. It's like, do we need to bring cigars? Or they, you know. Anyway, and so they're talking and they're having this debate, and I'm like, what are they talking about? Oh, well, he's a post millennial and he's a whatever. And and I was like, what are we? Like, I don't even. I didn't even like it was not something like it was even part of my vocabulary. And I've kind of even talked about that as like even going to seminary it was like, so what? Sh- you know, where should we land? And so. Um, it's, it's one of those things that like you can debate and have these, these times where you, you know, go back and forth. But again, in, in the end, those are, 
um, you know, those are secondary to the fact that Christ is our focus, not how all these events will occur. But the events are there, and they are there for us to wrestle with. And they do make us work at understanding and thinking about the Old Testament, because sometimes we gloss over passages in the Old Testament, and we're like, prophecy about the future, something's going to happen, I don't know, cities I don't know about. And so they do kind of force us sometimes to think, okay, what's that talking about? Was that back then? Is it now? And it helps us to be better scholars and students of the word. So, and we talked about it last time. Black or black and blue, white or gold, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter, right? <laughs> so, uh, any questions or thoughts? We're going to get to the end of Revelation 20, and the last two chapters is our final chapter, kind of talking about the future, and then we'll all kind of get along and be back in the same boat of, you know, no matter what our eschatology is, it all, like, becomes future eventually so that's where we're land but for now any any questions or thoughts about what we talked about today And for us to see, right, who Christ was with strength. And, and there's a part of his strength that wasn't fully seen and manifest even amongst the disciples of his, you know, ruling over the nations and what that looked like. It's almost like, so that's how you lead, you know, um, which could be, you know, for us, like not talked about in the details of Scripture, but uh, will be a wonderful sight. So, and it'll then it'll look different, right, when sin is completely separated from the world. But that's, uh, again, where our next conversation will go after that. So, all right, well, you guys are, you guys are dismissed, so. <laughs>